worthy. Amen? Boy, I'll tell you what, that's been some good stuff. The choir, the children, the special, my oh my. Even the course today, you did a great job. Boy, it's going so well, and now you have to deal with this. (laughs) Job chapter 5, verse 7 today. Job chapter 5, verse 7. Real simple verse, and one that all of us are, well, you're familiar with, maybe not as it's written in the Bible, but you're definitely familiar with this theme. The Bible says in chapter 5 of the book of Job, in verse 7, 
Yet man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward. Yet man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward. Now, the inevitability of trouble in one's life is given. That's just a simple truth. There is no escaping it. Most have said something like this, at least in their past. You know, that's not fair. That's just not fair. Maybe what's happening to me or what's been taking place or that somebody, you know, may have received something that we didn't. That's not fair. Well, when it comes to trouble, it finds all of us. It doesn't have any respecters of person, that for sure. And we think of Job, and Job was a man whose moral compass always faced north. His integrity level was off the charts. His spiritual maturity was exemplary. And the Bible says in Job chapter 1, verse 1, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. There weren't any like Job around. He was one and only Job, so to speak. We're going to see that he was considered one of the, he was the greatest man in the East at the time. Now, sadly enough, as good as Job was, as moral as Job was, as spiritual as Job was, trouble found him. Trouble found him. Matter of fact, look at verse 13 in chapter 1. Look at chapter 1, verse 13. I just want you to notice right off the bat, there's a phrase. It says, and there was a day. There was a day. Let me tell you what, it was a bad day for Job. As a matter of fact, as we read through Job chapter 1, verses 13 through 19, we're going to see that Job is reduced from being the greatest of all men in the east in verse 3 to a man losing almost everything in his life. In a day. Livestock was stolen. Servants were killed in verse 14 and 15. His sheep and the servants were consumed in a storm that appears to have started some kind of fire and they were burned up. The camels were stolen by the Chaldeans and the servants were killed in verse 17. Finally, in the end, his children were killed when the house collapsed upon them in verses 18 and 19. I mean to tell you, if there was a bad day in history, it was a bad day for Job. It couldn't get much worse. And ultimately, down the road, we know that Job would ultimately find himself in a place where his very health was taken from him also. So not only did he lose all of his possessions, not only did he lose his family and his very children, but he ultimately lost his own health. How did Job respond to this bad day? I'll be honest with you, he responded probably a lot better than I would. It doesn't mean that I shouldn't respond the way he did, but he probably responded better than I would. Job chapter 1, verse 20. Let's look at just a couple of those verses. These are those verses that often are preached on, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on those verses today, but I just want to use this to kind of kick off our lesson and message tonight, uh, this morning. But Job chapter 1, verse 20, the Bible says, Then Job arose, and this is immediately following the fact that he lost all his possessions and he lost his own children. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head, in verse 20, and fell down upon the ground and 
and worshipped. And said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Wow. Notice in chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. Now he's lost his health this time. And again, I, we're going to read, and we can have your own take on whether or not his wife was a supporter, whether his wife was, had, was negative or critical, and I'm going to leave that to you today. But you may have an opinion. I have an opinion. I think the Scriptures share some insight into that. But notice what his wife says to him in the midst of this turmoil, in the midst of this tragedy, in the midst of this difficulty. She says, ultimately, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. You say, I think she was trying to motivate him. Okay, good. I'm glad you think that. That's fine. Someone may say, I think she was just not very spiritual. Well, let me tell you something. You lose all of your children in a day. Listen, I'm not going to point fingers and I'm not going to throw stones at Job's wife. I'll promise you that. Mom's Whew, I can't imagine losing all your... T- hey, listen, daddy's bad enough. It's hard on dads, but it's a lot harder on moms. Moms carried them for nine months before they ever came out. So there's no difference. I still had to get up in the middle. Oh, you don't... Let me tell you something. You carry that baby for nine months, it'll make a difference. Somebody was talking about his wife makes him strap a watermelon onto his stomach and walk up and down the steps all the time just so he knows how he can, he can identify with her pain in the midst of that. And I heard this uh, radio commentator say, I wouldn't have no woman tell me to strap on a watermelon. And honestly, I ain't strapping on a watermelon either. But the fact is, is that, is that uh, uh, I'll be honest, I'll never understand what my wife endured and went through. Matter of fact, my daughter's having a baby right now. And it's like, you know, wow, good for her. But man, I'm going to tell you, she's out there, she's like... I mean, it's like crazy, you know? And there's a couple of you other ladies. There's a bunch of ladies around here. I mean, don't, guys, listen, we can say all that stuff all we want, but the truth is when it's out there, it's different. <laughs> so Job now, here he is. His wife says, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? And all this... Did Job, not, did Job sin? In all this, did not Job sin with his lips? Man, that's amazing to me. I don't know about you, but he didn't indict God. He didn't get upset with God. He didn't curse God. Wow. Amazing, really. Job 13, 15. Finally, as we move through the book of Job, we see that he says, though he slay me. Job 13, 15. How did Job respond to all this? By now, you got to understand, by now, he's even had a couple of his buddies show up, and they're giving him some advice and some so-called wisdom. And what is their advice? What's their wisdom? Uh, Job, you obviously have sinned. You've done something to deserve what you're going through. (laughs) Okay. In the midst of it all, Job chapter 13, verse 15 says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. And I will maintain mine own ways before him. And he said, I'm going to trust him. I don't, if he takes my very life, that's okay. He's been good to me. I don't care. I'm just going to trust him. I don't know what's ahead, and I don't know why this is happening, but I trust God.
Boy, I'll tell you what, that was a bad day. And he had some bad days following. I want to preach a message or share three things today to do when life deals you lemons. When life deals you lemons, what do you do? And I know some of the young people may be like, what's he talking about? Well, have you ever cut a lemon and squished it in your mouth? And he goes, that, you know, it, that's, that's, that's a bad day. Now, I like lemon, though, so I kind of like it. But you know what I'm talking about. We're talking about a bad day. You know, we say sour grapes or lemons or something. That's how we used to speak in the day. We don't talk like that much now. But when life deals you lemons... You get a lemon for a car, what's that? It's a bad car. When life deals you lemons, what are we to do? I'm going to give you three simple thoughts today, very simple, and we'll be done. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come to you. We thank you now for this time that we have together. Lord, we're grateful for the word of God. The truth is, Lord, as we mentioned earlier in our prayer, the fact is, is that everything's changing all around us all the time, and it has been forever. It's always like that in the world. But Lord, thank you that you never change. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you that your word is consistent because your word is Jesus Christ. Thank you so much that he is the same and that when we turn up to the pages of this book, we can always be confident that we're going to see truth and it's going to be the same whether it's in this century, the next century, or this millennium, the next millennium, or forever. Father, bless us now as we consider this thought, what to do when life deals you lemons. Be glorified in it, Lord. May you speak to hearts. May you bring comfort and help and hope. And Father, if there be those that are without Jesus Christ, may they recognize their need for a Savior today before they leave, before it's eternally too late. We'll thank you. We'll praise you for that. In Christ's name, amen. So what do you do when life deals you lemons? And by the way, we just mentioned and we made it very clear that it's going to happen sooner or later. If not now, it'll happen down the road. You're going to be dealt some lemons. You're going to get a bad hand. It's going to be a problem along the way in life. What do you do? Number one, look up. Look up. Say, well, what do you mean? Well, we need to remember that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. Now, remember how he left? Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 1, verse 9. Acts chapter 1, verse 9. I'll tell you, Job, he, he was willing to look up, wasn't he? Now, in his case, he necessarily wasn't looking for the return of Christ, but he was definitely looking to God up above. In Acts chapter 1, verse 9, notice what the Bible says here. Jesus has died, he was buried, he rose again, and now he's going to ascend back to heaven. And the Bible says, and when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they stood steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, so shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Then he said, listen, I'm coming back. The angels, those two men testified. They said, to, listen, Jesus Christ is going to return. You've seen him leave, didn't you? He's coming back the same way, but he's coming back. We also have the testimony, not only of the two men, but we have the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Over in the book of John, chapter 14, verse 1, he told the disciples, let not your heart be troubled. 
Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. Man, he, he promised to return. Man, we have the testimony of the two men. We have the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. My friend, may I say, he's coming back. He came the first time as prophesied. He'll come the second time as promised. And we can never forget the words of Christ penned by the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos there as he concludes the revelation when he says, Surely I come quickly. Jesus is speaking and Jesus is penning through the Apostle the words that he wants for us. He says, Surely I come quickly. He's coming back. The Lord asks us to watch for him. In the scriptures, in the book of Luke, turn to chapter 12, verse 37, please. Luke chapter 12, verse 37. <clears throat> there we read in chapter 12, verse 37 of the book of Luke. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. I'm going to stop right there. We'll get to the rest of it. But notice he says, Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. What does it mean then to watch? What's he implying? What's he talking about? And he's talking about us as servants. And the first thing is we see here is that the watching, we're going to note in the context of the passage that we're not to be concerned or preoccupied with present things. You say, What? Yes, if you would look ahead now, you were in chapter 12, verse 37. Go back to verse 22 of that same chapter. And notice what he's referring to, what he's talking about. He says in verse 22 here, And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, neither for the body, what ye shall put on. So just before arriving at verse 37, we read that we're not to be taking thought of what we should eat or what we should drink. We're not to be absorbed in all of that. We're not to be consumed with all of that. We are Christians, and as Christians, we're not to live fleshly, selfish lives and ask the questions, what am I going to get to eat, and what am I going to get to drink, and I want to store up my goods, and, and how can I get food and raiment? Those aren't the things we ought to be so preoccupied with. Those are not the things that ought to be the biggest thing on our, our bucket list. I mean, I just want a big house, and I want to know how I'm going to get a lot of money in the bank, and I want to know how I can establish myself in the job, in the workplace. Wait a second. Those aren't bad things, but they're not the priority in the Christian life. The priority in the Christian life is different. We're to be watching. And our life ought to be lived in a way that we're expecting the return of Christ in a way that when He does return, we'll not be ashamed at His coming. We'll not have wasted time. We'll have redeemed the time. Not only are we to be watching... But notice this, in chapter 12, verse 37 again, let's go back there, but it continues, blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. He says, verily I say unto you, that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to me and, and, and will come forth and serve them. And not only would he be watching, but Jesus would be having us wait with our lamps lit with the lights on, if you will, 
Man, if the master's going to come home late, man, we want to make sure we're waiting up for him. I mean, we're the servant. He's the master. He walks into the house no matter what time of day or night. We're prepared. We're ready for him to serve. We're not to go to sleep before he returns. We're to have the lights on and the house well lit. We're to be watching for the Lord Jesus Christ as we ought to be. And if we're going to do it as we ought to be, those lamps have to be burning. Our light needs to be shining. And may I say that when we think about the light shining, we're talking about our conduct and our behavior, even in the world in which we live. Does our neighbor recognize the difference in our life? Does he see, does she see the light of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do people out in the public recognize us as being unique and different and distinct? And the believer can get consumed with the things of this world like anyone else. But God says, wait, you're to be watching, you're to be waiting so that you can be prepared when I come. Boy, when, the, when life deals us lemons, let me tell you something. We need to bear to look up and say, oh God, oh God, I know you're coming back and I can trust you to come back. You won't put anything on me I can't handle and I know that you could come today and I'm excited and I'm looking forward to your return. Because this world and this life can get pretty heavy on our shoulders and we need to know that there's hope. And it's the blessed hope, the Bible calls it, the return of the Lord Jesus and then that new body and that new life we'll have. Philippians 3.20 says, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.6, therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Hey, when life deals us lemons, we must look up in anticipation of our Lord's return. We got to get our eyes off of us and our circumstances and the hurt and the heartache and look to Jesus and keep our eyes on the sky and say, I know you're coming back. Let not your hearts be troubled. But you can know I'm coming back. Not only look up, but you need to look down. Look down. But when life deals us lemons, we must look down and remember exactly what God has delivered us from. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, As it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, after this the judgment. And I'm tell you what, we all have an appointment with death, don't we? It's a biblical truth. But after this, the judgment. What, 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 when the passage speaks of judgment, what's it referring to? Well, take your Bible, look over at Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. In chapter 20, verse 11, the book of Revelation, we read, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. 
And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You say, wait a second now. Man, I mean, you're talking about life giving me a barrel of lemons here, and now you're pointing me to this? I mean, this is so discouraging. This is so negative. This is so critical. Oh, boy, it is discouraging, isn't it? But not for the believer. Not for the believer. Oh, there's no doubt as someone that goes through life and neglects God and doesn't receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Oh, yeah, that's a horrible day ahead. And may I say the judgment's coming and we'll all stand before God and we will give an account. (laughs) But for the believer... For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the Bible talks about in verse 15, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. May I say the moment you put your faith in Christ, your name's put in the book of life. And some would say it's already there, it just isn't blotted out. And you know what, you can believe it however you want. All I know is this for sure, without a doubt, you will never spend one moment in hell And may I say, when those lemons come along and they start getting real sour and you're starting to feel burdened down by life, you need to look down and say, thank God I'll never, ever put one foot in hell. As bad as it gets here on earth, I know I'll never have to think or worry or be concerned about that. It's settled. Psalm 9:17 says the wicked shall be turned into hell and all those nations that forget God. But can I tell you in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 the Bible also says that at that time you were without Christ. Oh yeah, at that time you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But can I tell you the moment you put your faith in Christ you got hope again. It's over. You've got the hope. Not only of the fact that Christ is going to return and take you out if he comes before you die. Not only the fact that he promises I'll be back and when it gets really rough you just look up. But when you look down you can know I got hope. Man I don't have to deal with that. I don't have to worry about that. And boy I'll tell you what no matter how great the burden gets in life when you remember that you're saved forever That'll put an inside joy way deep down inside. Oh, the tears may still flow with loss and heart and hurt and heartache may still come, but down deep there'll be an ever steady flow of joy. Knowing that you're God's child and knowing you'll never go to hell and knowing that heaven's your home one day. Number three, when life deals us lemons, we must look up In anticipation of the Lord's return, we need to look down remembering what we've escaped. And finally, we need to look all around. Yeah, look up, look down, but look all around. We need to consider what God has already done and how he has provided for us. We need to remember the blessings of God in our life. And may I say, it's not easy to remember those blessings sometimes when the burden of grief is upon us or when the difficulties of life come. Sometimes it's so hard to look past those We have to fight through that sometimes and remember everything God has done and to look at what he's even doing. Sometimes that's hard, but we've got to as believers. 
James 1.17 says, every good gift. And every perfect, excuse me, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Can I say today, and I believe that from the Bible, just from what we read, we can say with confidence, there isn't a good thing in my life or in your life that isn't from a loving and caring Heavenly Father. We think of our health, if you have it today, or your home, or your family, or your spouse, or your children, or your job, or your education, or your friends, or your money, or your savings, your talents, your abilities, your skills. The list goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And we simply need to say, thank you, Jesus. We need to look all around us. I'm telling you, when life deals you some sour grapes, when life deals me sour grapes, i got to look around me, and i got to remember what God has already done, and i got to see what God is doing. I lay my head on a pillow, and I thank God I'm not in the street. I sit down, and I have a meal, and I thank God I'm not destitute. I receive a phone call from a friend and I say, thank God I'm not abandoned. I get out of bed and I say, well, God, at least I can get out of bed. Man, we've got to remember what God has done and keep our eyes on what he's doing even. Philippians 4.19 says, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Let's just be honest. Sometimes it doesn't seem like God's meeting our needs. Sometimes we look around and we think, okay, God, you know you took away the most important thing in my life. You, you took away my health. You took away a family member. You took away a friend. Lord, you, you uh, allowed this tragedy in my life. You allowed this circumstance in my life. Okay, if you're such a loving God, where are you now? Let's be honest. In this whole flesh, it's easy to get there. And you know what? I don't, I don't, I, don't, I, I can understand that. But as believers, we have to look up. We, we have to look up in anticipation of our Lord's return. We've got to look down and remember what we've escaped. And we've got to look around us in gratitude of what God has already provided. Thomas Obadiah Chisholm was born in a log cabin in Franklin, Kentucky in 1866. He received his education in just a little old country school. There's a schoolhouse. You know, like little house on the prairie kind of stuff. Some of you young people may not even know what I'm talking about. And he got that education. He, he finalized his education early on. And by the age of 16, he was teaching there. He was saved at age 27. And with no college or seminary training, he was ordained to the Methodist, Methodist ministry at the age of 36. Sadly enough, however, Thomas became rather ill. And within one year of being in the ministry, he had to step back. He could no longer minister because of his health. So he moved to Vineland, New Jersey, where he opened an insurance office. He was always interested in poetry. He wrote hundreds of little poems during his lifetime, I mean, hundreds Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and 23 inspired him to write the text for this song that we often sing to this day called, Great is Thy Faithfulness. 
It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, the verse says, because of His compassion. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, the verse says. Chisholm was inspired to write that time-lasting song. He experienced that faithfulness that Lamentation spoke of. Although he suffered ill health most of his adult life, although he never made much money, he said this, these words. He said, God has given me many wonderful displays of his providing care, which have filled me with astonishing gratefulness. Hey, the inevitable will come. Trouble is going to find us. It is a reality, and there is no escaping it. When it comes to trouble, it's no respecter of persons. But when it comes, we must look up in anticipation of our Lord's return. We have to look down and remember what we've escaped, we need to look all around us in gratitude of what God has already provided. That demands faith, doesn't it? It demands a faith in God. It demands faith in His ability to provide. It demands faith that all things work together for good to them that love God. Charles Spurgeon, he was referred to as the prince of preachers. He told of an evening when he was riding home after a heavy day's work. The load was great, and he just felt extremely tired and weary. He felt even depressed when all of a sudden, like lightning, like lightning flashing through the sky, he thought of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for thee. He said, I should think it so, Lord. And then he said he burst out laughing. He would go on to say that it seemed to make unbelief so absurd. It was as though some little fish, being very thirsty, was worried about drinking the river dry. And the river was saying, Drink away, little fish, my stream is sufficient for thee. Or it seemed, he said, that after the seven years of plenty in Egypt, a mouse feared that it would die of famine. And Joseph might say, well, cheer up, little mouse. My garners are sufficient for thee. Or granaries, excuse me. Or a man who was way up on a mountain saying to himself, man, I'm so afraid I'm going to use up all this oxygen. But the earth might say, breathe away. Fill your lungs as much as you like. My atmosphere is sufficient for thee. See, little faith will bring our souls to heaven. Just a little tiny bit. But great faith will bring heaven to us. You and I can know one thing for sure in this life. Life's going to deal up some lemons. But faith will point our eyes up, and faith will remind us of the many blessings God has already given. Job 13, 15, we already said it. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. 
but I will maintain mine own ways before him. I wonder, are you going through a tough time? It's a good likelihood a number of you are going through really tough times. Has life dealt you some lemons? Look up. Look down and look all around. It all begins at a cross. 2,000 years ago, the creator God of the universe recognized and saw our great need. More than a good job or paycheck, more than a retirement, more than even a family, we need a Savior. To go a lifetime without a need like that being met in a life would be horrible, and yet to go an eternity in a place called hell would be worse. And God sent His only begotten Son to pay sin's debt and sin's penalty on your behalf and mine. And so 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ took his place on Calvary. The hands were driven into his hands and in his feet. And there between heaven and earth, he hung. Bearing the guilt, the shame, enduring the agony, the terror. For you, for me, for all of us. Because God knew there wasn't one thing you and I could ever do to earn his favor. There's no scale weighted enough in our favor that puts us in heaven without Jesus Christ washing our sin completely away. Well, I'll ask forgiveness. You go ahead, but the Bible says that we're sinners at the root, that sin began in a garden with Adam and Eve. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. The truth is, we're all sinners because of the sin of Adam, and as a result of that, we will never be able to do enough to erase the sin scar in our heart. We have to have a new heart. And only the great physician can do that surgery in our life. And so we come to the cross with a broken heart, with a humble heart. And we bow before a holy God and we confess our sin. Oh God, I'm a sinner! And I deserve to perish because I have nothing to offer you. But oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Wash me clean. Forgive my sin. Save my soul. Take me to heaven with you one day. I know you're the only way, the truth, and the life. Has there been a day, a time, a place when you cried out to God for his mercy and his forgiveness? Not for a sin, but for your sin. The sin of Adam, that sin debt you owe. And the Bible says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. He does a transformation work, a regeneration work. He makes us new and whole and complete like never before. Have you been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ? Have you been cleansed? Have you been born again, the Bible says? A new birth. And it takes place at the foot of a cross. 
today before you leave, you'll be given an opportunity to respond. We do not open up altars simply to embarrass people. We don't open up altars because we believe that the only way you can get things taken care of is at the altar. We believe that the altar's in your heart. We believe that you can go to God anytime and be saved. We believe you can go to God anytime as a child of God and enter into the holy of holies and pray to your heavenly Father. However, an altar's a great place to do business with God. Maybe you're Maybe you've been handed some sour grapes. You've been dealt a hand of sour grapes today. Maybe you've been dealt a hand of sour lemons. Maybe you're going through a difficult time. Can I tell you, you need to look up, look down, look all around. But if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you need to settle that today. I don't care how long you've been in church. It doesn't matter how much you know about the Bible. The truth is, is that when we stand before God one day, it won't be whether we know him. It'll be whether he knows us. That's what the Bible says. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. But did we not cast out devils? Did we not do wonderful works in thy name? I never knew you. See, we're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Put your faith in Christ and trust him alone to get you to heaven, to forgive your sins and take you to heaven. Then you know what? He'll settle it. Will you settle it today? The Bible says he stands at the door and he knocks. You need only open your heart's door to him. And the Bible says he'll move in, take up residency, and make you that new creature and give you that reservation in heaven. Father, we come to you. We thank you for this time we've had together. Lord, we desperately need you today. Lord, whether a person is without the Savior yet, although they may be a good person, they're not a born-again, saved person according to the Word of God. They may be religious, they may be spiritual, but they must be saved and born again, forgiven as a result of receiving Christ. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Lord, may those be saved today. And in just a moment, Lord, as we open up the altars and as the music will begin to play in a moment, Lord, we pray you'd give them the very courage they need to step out into the aisle and see one of these gentlemen up front, and then they'll take and have a lady show a lady, a man show a man from the Word of God how they can know for sure heaven's their home by the precious promises in your book, not by what a church teaches or believes, not by what a pastor says, but what the Word of God teaches. And Lord, for the believer today, may we, Father, take the time when life deals us some lemons to look up. To look up in anticipation of the Lord's return. To look down remembering what we've escaped and to look all around us in gratitude of what God has already done and provided. We'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand every head bowed.